1: Dominic, we've talked a lot over the years um, over email and various things, and finally we get to meet and to talk about the most bizarre subject. Considering I live in a tax-free island in the middle of nowhere, we're bit about tax. <laughs> I wish I did. <laughs> what I'd love to do first is just uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about your history, who you are, where you come from, and uh, what you do, just to frame it for people.
2: Well, if I'm if I'm trying to sound important, I would describe my background as eclectic, uh, but uh, we'll say it's we'll say it's unusual in that when I was a young man, I always wanted to be a writer. And I had this theory that all the best writers started out as actors. Um, from William Shakespeare, Charles Dickens, they were all actors first. So I decided I was going to go to drama school and train to be an actor in order to be a writer, if that makes sense. And then while I was at drama school, um, I, for some reason, I was the best in the class at radio. And I got signed up by this voiceover agent uh, like as soon as I left and they had me doing voice service from the, literally the day I left drama school. And voice is a, it's a weird profession. But back in the 90s, it was very well paid and you get very well looked after and you don't get quite treated like a celebrity but you get treated like a very important person without having to pay any of the sort of downside of fame because nobody knows who you are and so it's quite a sort of nice comfortable lifestyle that I fell into and while I was doing that I had written this comic song um, called The Upper Class Rapper and uh, I sort of started doing it as a sideline in comedy clubs and so I sort of became a stand-up comedian as well and by it would have been the early noughties the mid noughties 2005 around about then I'd actually made a bit of money and I was like oh I want to I want to invest it and I started reading about everything that was going on in the world and I went to meet various fund managers and I got this really bad feeling off a lot of the fund managers that I met all I just got the impression they were all Wanted their little one and two percent. And I was reading on the in the early hours of the morning, I got sort of sucked into the web of gold. And I thought, this is I really like this gold. And I started reading about fiat money and the debasement of currency. And suddenly things like why house prices are so expensive and why the state is so expansive, and all these questions that had sort of boiled away in my mind suddenly became clear. And There were lots of very interesting people talking on the internet, James, Jim Rogers and James Turk and David Morgan and various other people like that, Jim Dines and all these sort of old school um, newsletter writers and so on. I thought, I really want to talk to these people. How can I find a means to talk to these people? So I started a podcast and this was in about 2006. And I found that everyone's quite happy to come on podcasts and (laughs) you know, talk to sell whatever they're selling for sell their newsletter or their own brand. But I also found that podcasting is the most fantastic way to meet people. And in an hour, you sort of in the heightened conversation that is an interview, you can get to know someone way quicker than, than you know, you get through in an hour what you would in, you know, several meetings. And the podcast was, was very successful. It became the UK's number one investment podcast. It started out being called Commodity Watch Radio. And then, and the, you know, the very first person I interviewed was Jim Rogers, you know, J- J- George Soros, his partner, the man who helped bring down. And I was like, wow. And one of the things I quickly learned is that in in, in mining and investment, that particular world was actually bizarrely much more open than the media is. Whenever you go to a, you know, you think the media, it's all about communication and everyone's introducing everyone to everyone, but no, everyone's got their little fiefdoms in the media and they're terrified that somebody else is going to steal their little throne. And so no, it's a terrible industry for backstabbing and, and, and not introducing. Whereas in, you know, in mining, All that matters is the quality of the rock at the end of the day. And it doesn't matter if you're white, brown, black, white, old, young, male, female. All that matters is the rock. And I just found that it was just much more open and everyone, you know, you could have serfs talking with lords in a way that you couldn't have in the media. The idea that serfs can talk to lords. So anyway... Uh, so I was sort of rather fell in love with this new, exciting world. And you've got all these salesman characters that you find in mining who are, who are very winning. And then at the same time, one of the people I interviewed was a woman called Meryn Somerset Webb, who um, was uh, the editor of Money Week. And she said, oh, we need people like you to come and write for us. And, and I said, well, I don't really know what I'm talking about. No, it doesn't matter. Just write it. You'll, 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 you'll learn. And so suddenly I found myself with a column in Money Week and things just sort of spiraled from there and then I was invited to write this to sort of there was a film called Four Horsemen that a guy had made and it was a total mess and he asked me to rewrite it for him which I did and it became very successful and then I saw what was possible with that film we had like millions and millions of views on YouTube it was all about the global financial crisis and then from there I I, I wrote my first book um, Life After the State which was all about how we need to reform our system of money. And then while I was writing that, this thing called Bitcoin was invented, which was the free market p- providing a solution <laughs> to our system of money. So I, I think I Life After the State was like the first paragraph in a proper book that mentioned Bitcoin. And, and then from there, I wrote this book, Bitcoin, The Future of Money, which was the first book on Bitcoin from a recognized publisher. And and so I saw that, that you know the free market was providing solutions to the to the monetary system to the problems of money and so i turned my hand to the next big subject that the world needs to sort out which is daylight like robbery which is taxes and um so that's sort of me and how i got here and and this is the next book how we save the world is by by reforming our systems of tax
1: i mean i've been um Looking at tax you know, as I said at the beginning flippantly that yeah I live in a tax free jurisdiction I mean there is nothing tax-free. there's nothing tax free there's import duties and there's other stuff but i've been writing in global macro investor about the rise of deficits and that the outcome is going to be more taxes, but you went back in the book and looked at the history of taxes what's the what's the kind of journey you want to take us through so to get people to understand this and and then where you think this is all going
2: one of the things this this book actually started as a comedy show in Edinburgh and the in a in a zombie film you have this idea one of the tropes of a zombie film is that you have this idea of a zero patient the patient where the virus started you know the bat in wuhan that is the zero patient and if you can get to the bat if you can get to the zero patient then the hero of the film can either find the cure for the zombie virus or if he kills the zero patient you know he either finds the antidote or he kills the zero patient and the virus is dead i used to think that society's zero patient if we're going to save society and fix society we need to get rid of fiat money somehow we need a better sounder system of money and you know i used to think that gold was the zero patient and then um, to an extent bitcoin but then i came to realize that actually the zero patient is is a society system of tax you design a society by the way that you tax it and i realized that there has never you know there's the old saying that the two inevitabilities of life are death and taxes. And by the way, we attribute that phrase to Benjamin Franklin. But actually, it was a comedian who came up with that phrase about 50 years later, uh, 50 years earlier in a farce from 1716 called The Cobbler of Preston. But the two inevitabilities are death and taxes. But there has never been a society without taxation. Right from the dawn of civilization, taxes in one form or another have existed. You didn't always pay your tax in money. Sometimes you, you paid your tax with your labor or with a share of your produce or whatever. And probably in the hunter-gatherer societies that predated civilization, there existed this idea of, 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 a, of a sense of duty to the greater collective. So I started to look at the world through this prism of taxation. And once you do that, suddenly, it's one of those real light bulb moments where the, you know, the, the curtain is pulled back and you suddenly start to see things clearly. Why things are as they are today? Why things happened in the past? How things are going to pan out in the future? Once you look at the world through this prism of taxation, it it you just realise that not only is taxes inevitable, but behind almost every great event in history, there is some kind of tax story, often an untold tax story because taxes are boring. And you start to think, why is tax not taught in the same way we teach English or French or or maths? Taxation should be taught at school. It's just this incredibly important subject that few people have bothered to write
1: about. So what is it about tax that outside of that what did you get your teeth into so you've now got a conceptual framework which is okay tax have been around forever it's the patient zero of the financial system it's almost how it works right it's not just
2: the financial system Raoul. it's, it's everything it's societal system it's a societal structure exact exactly
1: okay so you get that observation what do you want to do about it so why the why the book
2: well the the book came because I was offered a publishing deal, (laughs) but it was a book that I wanted to write. I did pitch it before I was offered the publishing deal, but, but yeah, it was the sort of the next evolution from money. You know, we've, we've, we've looked at money and, and the world is aware of the evils of, of fiat money, I think now, but now we, we start to look, you know, what else? And we need to sort out our system of tax badly, badly, badly. And if you think that, you know, Every single war in history was is was paid for, was made possible because of taxes. You know, taxes paid for the war to happen. The king levied the tax, and then he went to war. And then afterwards, the reason often that he went to war was he wanted to conquer. He wanted to take control of a tax base somewhere, the land, the labor, the produce, the profits. They would plunder, and then we tax, and then they would tax. And, you know, if taxation didn't exist, it's almost like war couldn't exist because war makes uh, tax makes war possible. And then the bizarre flip of that is that um, not only does tax make war possible, but war makes tax possible. It's very hard for leaders to to raise uh, uh, new taxes in times of peace. You know, it's a- almost always done with some kind of national crisis, some kind of emergency. And some recent examples of that would be, you know, ordinary Americans didn't pay taxes until 1942, the Revenue Act of 1942, when income taxes were raised to um, pay for the American war effort. And there was a wonderful song written by Irving Berlin to- to fill um, Americans with their a sense of their patriotic duty. And the song went, I paid my income tax today, a thousand planes to bomb Berlin, they'll all be paid for, and I chipped in. And was ever the sort of the link between war and taxes so apparent. Um, 1914, Uh, You know, taxes went up dramatically in the First World War, both for Europeans and for Americans. That war was also paid for by another form of taxation, which was the debasement of currency, the inflation tax, which Milton Friedman calls taxation without legislation. Um, The English and the uh, French and the German countries all took their countries off the gold standard in order to print the money they needed to pay for the war. If they'd been kept, if those governments had been kept within the restraints of gold, War could never have happened to the extent that it did. Um, you know, the American Civil War gave America the IRS, and that was the very first income taxes in, in America were raised in the American Civil War. And by the way, the American Civil War, it was, it was you know, it's painted now as a, a war about slavery. It wasn't, it was a war about economic interests. One of the biggest economic factors in that war were the fact that the Southerners felt they were paying way may unjust levels of taxes compared to the Northerners, and their tax revenue was all being spent to, to protect industry in the North. And they no longer wanted a part of it. it going off for 50 years and they wanted to succeed because they were sick of effectively their cotton plantations subsidizing the North. It was a huge factor in the American Civil War. And it goes virtually untold that the Napoleonic Wars gave income tax to the British for the very first time. So there's this incredible relationship between war and taxes. Every revolution in history is some kind of revolt against some kind of injustice justice perpetrated the tax system the french revolution the russian revolution the american revolution no no taxation without representation and it's not just wars and revolutions it's bizarre things like you know Mary and Joseph were only in Bethlehem to pay taxes when Jesus Christ was born. They went there because Augustus Caesar levied his census. Had they not been there, Christ wouldn't have been born in Bethlehem, and Christianity could never have evolved in the way that it did. And the, the crime for which Jesus Christ was eventually crucified was forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, non-payment of taxes. Um, you look at something like Islam. Historians struggle to explain why it is that Islam you know, effectively took control of the whole of the Middle East and North Africa in about three decades. And when you learn that all the countries that they conquered were heavily, were were sick of paying taxes either to the Romans or the Byzantines or the um, Sasanian Empire. And when the Islamic conquerors came in, they were actually grateful for these conquerors to relieve them of the burdens of taxation. That's one of the reasons the conquest was able to happen as quickly as it did. And then the Islamic conquerors said, well, you can either convert to Islam or you cannot convert to Islam and you have to pay poll taxes. Uh, And if you don't pay the poll taxes, we're going to kill you. So it was a choice between death, taxes, or Islam. Everyone chose Islam. Who can blame them? And it was like the most effective proselytizing tool in all history. And it explains this incredible, and you know, Islam went into a sort of dark age from about 1400 you know onwards but until the 1400 it was one of the most brilliant societies innovative full of trade free markets free thought brilliant mathematicians brilliant architecture so many it contributed so much to the world and it was built on low taxes and you know there is a relationship between low taxes and freedom as margaret thatcher said you can't have um economic freedom you can't have freedom without economic freedom and You'd look at the great societies in history; they were almost always low-tax jurisdictions, and there's a relationship between low tax, freedom of the individual, free speech, free thought, free movement. All these things are all interconnected, and so as a you know, tax is like a measure of freedom in a way. And you know, so in a in a totalitarian state, the ordinary labourer earns owns none of his own labor in a in an anarchy he owns all of his own labor in a social democracy it's about 50 50 you know so you just once you get going there's just no end to this subject
0: you're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com.
1: Fascinating. Totally fascinating. So here we are, just having fought a global war, which is the pandemic. The
2: the war against drugs, the war against terror, or the war against COVID? Well, (laughs) the war against COVID
1: had the biggest economic impact of all, right? Because we shut down the world for a year. So it was like a kinetic war. It, It really had a huge impact. And and it's massively damaged governments. So the only answer they have is, okay, we need to think about raising taxes. There are some clever ways like carbon credits, you know, the carbon offsets, that's, a, that's taxed by a different method. But taxes on the average person, as you pointed out, in times like this, always go up, and it may innovate as well. What do you think, where do you think we are now, and where is this going?
2: Well, I mean, it's the problem that gold bugs have been talking about for a long time, which is that governments have been spending more than they earn. But COVID has just accelerated that in a way, in the most dramatic way possible. And I mean, we've got, uh, the day we're speaking, I think this is broadcast afterwards, but tomorrow is Budget Day here in the UK. And, you know, the Chancellor's talking about raising this tax and raising that tax. But really, any money that he can reasonably raise by... By um, increased taxes, doesn't even touch the side of how much they've spent. And, you know, I, I talk about three there are three different ways that you tax. There's debt, which is a tax on the future. And they're basically monetizing debt now. The Bank of England is printing money and buying government, or the Fed or the ECB, whichever central bank you like, is, is printing money, buying government. Debt, and then everyone says, "Well, the Bank of England owns the debt. What's the problem?" It's just monetization of government debt. But so debt, but debt is a tax on the future. You know, we only finished paying off our World War One debts. I think it was five or six years ago in the UK, and you're like, "Uh, "So my taxes have been going to pay for World War One debts," and you know we're in similar levels of debt as we were in World War One, and that is going to be passed on to our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren.
1: And you see the trend rate of growth of GDP declines as the debt burden rises. Of course it does. Because it's a tax, as you say. It's a tax on the future. So what happens is the overall output of the economy over time reduces.
2: Absolutely. And then, you know, they say debt is the slavery of the free. Uh, And, you know, we talked about the measure of tax and freedom, but debt, it's it's all interconnected. The second way is they inflate, they print money. And that's, you know, as we said, taxation without legislation. That's the most insidious tax of the lot because people don't actually realize it's taking place. But at this point, we have to praise the Lord for Bitcoin because, you know, I remember spending ages trying to explain the evils of fiat money to people. And, and you know, I wrote animated videos about it. The Four Horsemen, the film that I, as I say, I co-wrote, I think that almost did more than anything to get the word out about the evils of fiat money. But along came Bitcoin. And, you know, it's proved the most incredible educative tool about the evils of fiat money ever because as soon as people buy bitcoin or even what encourages them to buy bitcoin in the first place is they can see the evils of money there's some bitcoin educator that that's explained it to them and there's a huge incentive to do this which is the more people that buy bitcoin the higher the price goes so it's it's sort of people are profiting from their education it's the most wonderful um virtuous circle but you know thank the lord for bitcoin because it has educated so many people about money and we need to do the same with tax and then, of course, third means by which you tax, debt, inflation, and then the third means is, is direct and indirect taxes, VAT, income tax, and all the rest of it. And, you know, wh- one of the things I used to do in my Edinburgh show, Raoul, was I challenged the audience to find a single activity uh, that doesn't involve taxation in some way. There is not, you know, the only area is, is perhaps certain bodily functions. And and some people say sex, and I okay, the bed you do it on is taxed. All you're doing is creating future taxpayers. Contraception is tax. So even something as as private as sex involves tax in some way. It's just everywhere in our lives. In ancient Rome, I love this story. In ancient Rome, um, Nero enacted a urine tax. Uh, urine was used to for tanning and laundering and for brushing people's brushing your teeth they would leave pots basically piss pots around the roman cities and people would deposit their urine there and the piss collector the piss taker would come and take the urine and and then you know process it and sell it on And it became, aristocratic urine was obviously better than uh, lower class urine. (laughs) And the most prized urine in Europe, for some reason, was Portuguese urine. I don't know what they put in it, but everyone wanted Portuguese urine. Anyway, this became such a lucrative business. And it's, it's quite sensible in a way. Recycling your urine makes much more environmental sense than it does just flushing it down the loo. But in any case, it became such a lucrative business that Nero started to tax it. And then Vespasian, Nero's successor, um, I think I've got this the right way around, was then pressured to remove the tax. And he was said, he was told that it, it's dirty money. And he held up a gold coin and said, the money is clean. And that's where we get this idea, apparently, of clean and dirty money from. It goes all the way back to this urine tax. Wonderful story. There are so many stories like that. Uh, we'll come back to them as the conversation goes on. But the the... But any, in any case, today, tax is everywhere. You cannot escape taxation, no matter. Even, you know, you said you live in the Cayman Islands and there's very low levels of income and corporation tax in the, in the Cayman Islands, but there's still tax everywhere.
1: Yeah, I and mean, I can't buy anything without a big tax. I mean, every so goods are super expensive because the government needs to pay for some services. So they raise tax, and, you know, there's employment um, permits and all that. There's tax. So there is no tax free. It's just a low tax jurisdiction in, the rea- in reality. <laughs> but you know, I want to go back to the second point before we dig into the third point. And tax
2: tax means government. You know, low tax means small government. High tax means big government. Tax means government.
1: The second level, this this kind of debasement tax, is very insidious because you don't see it, right? It doesn't come in CPI, and that's where the gold guys got this dead wrong. It's like they were always like the seventies are coming back. And it's Weimar Republic, and what it, what they missed is that the, the debasement of fiat money actually drove gold up over time. So what I did is I built a basket of twenty seven currencies, excluding the dollar, mm. and then used the denominator of gold because gold is the longest standing form of money. So you know it has some value for that. And what you find is it's a stair step approach as More money printing happens, Uh, gold rises versus these currencies. So, since the financial crisis, that basket of currencies has fallen 60%. Now, you don't see it because we don't, it's not the dollar falling 60% or the pound or the euro, it's all of them versus gold. And the same holds true because then when you look at the Let's say copper versus gold or oil versus gold, they all trade in this bank, right, that assets that have Mm. relative valuation. So everything is kind of consistent. What's interesting is when you divide the equity market, you can use MSCI World, global equities, divide it by the G4 central bank balance sheets. And global equities have been going sideways since the GFC. Even the S&P has gone sideways once you just denominate it by the Fed balance sheet. Or even M2. So what it's suggesting is all these assets that we think are crazy, like the equity market, aren't. Because when you look at equities versus gold, it's pretty much in line over the last 50 years, 100 years. What's the big thing we're all missing, because we don't see it, is the denominator, which is the balance sheets of the central banks or global M2, whichever measure of money has happened. So people don't see it. They don't realize it. They don't understand it. But the Bitcoin guys kind of started figuring this out. Bitcoin is actually the only asset that has outperformed it—not the S and P, not gold, not silver, not anything—only Bitcoin, which has been fascinating.
2: Yeah, it it happens in a way not one in a million can diagnose. That's the famous Keynes quote about inflation.
1: Yeah, and what's really interesting is over that same time period, um, I looked at um, wage growth. So wage growth, adjusted for inflation, has underperformed most things by CPI a little bit. But really, the problem has been assets. As this printing has happened, I divided, let's say, average house price by average income, you've lost 70% of your purchasing power in the last 30 years. It's unbelievable. Once you start, how many how many shares of the S and P you could buy, how much gold you could buy with the average income. So this is what's actually happened. This is why we've got the riots in the streets. This is why we've got the populism. Is people have got poorer without realizing why? And yes, it's globalization and it's demographics that's causing this deflation, particularly in wages, because people get replaced by machines now or by Mm. a worker in Vietnam, whatever it may be. But the problem is, is central banks have thought the way to keep the system alive is by printing money. It's only making it worse. So and that that's a bad tax.
2: It's awful. The two biggest causes of the inequality gap are uh, inflation, that process you've just described, and income tax. Because, you know, assets, you're not taxed on your assets assets unless you sell. And this isn't me advocating wealth taxes, by the way. But you're not taxed on your assets unless you sell. And assets actually benefit from uh, asset price inflation, money printing. Whereas if you, you, you know, you're, you're a young man, you start out with nothing, all you've got is your labor, your work, and yet you're constantly and heavily taxed on your labor. One. So the guy has got the assets that you want has no taxes, you're constantly have chipped away at. And then two, the money you're paid in keeps losing its purchasing power. So you're taxed twice, while the, the other guy isn't taxed at all. And then so the gap between the two inevitably grows.
1: Yeah. And the wealthy can buy the the assets that offset the printing, which is real estate, gold, equities. Sure. The average guy can't afford them so it just gets worse and worse and worse and sure and what's more the wealthy guy
2: can leverage he can get a mortgage against his house the poor guy can't get the mortgage and so the you know the the thing exacerbates even more um i was uh looking through some i like old watching old adverts and watching voice service from the 1980s and i was watching an old advert for the leeds liquid gold savings account i remember that and this ad yeah. And so this ad featured George Cole in a sort of Arthur Daly character persona. And he was getting involved in all these different businesses and they were all going wrong. And then at the end of the ad, he goes, Do You know what? I'm just going to put my money in the liquid gold by the leads. It's a much better thing. I get 9% on my money. 9%. Now, that's some compensation. Now, in those days, you know, CP, even though they only use RPI, There wasn't, China wasn't exporting its inflation, goods were manufactured locally. So there wasn't the same deflationary pressures on consumer goods. So inflation was measured more accurately. Um, You know, sorry, RPI and CPI were more accurate measures, I should say because you know china exported its it was able to make goods much more cheaply and that put huge downward pressure on consumer goods prices so that that meant central banks could say oh look inflation's really low but if you know if you wanted a a five percent yield on a gilt uh, 10 years ago even 10 years ago 12 years ago it would have cost you 100 grand if you want five percent yield now it's going to cost you a million pounds or something no i'm sorry if you want five grand you understand what I mean? To get a, to get five grand in yield would cost you a hundred grand once upon a time. To get five grand in yield now would cost you a million pounds. Yeah. And they say there's no inflation. And by the way, I think I think the S and P, um, particularly the S and P, and I think the role of of tra- um, uh, ETFs and tracker funds has had a huge role in this as well because the S and P has just become like a. You just buy a tracker fund for the S&P. You don't have to take individual company risk. And that becomes your savings account. The s and is like replace savings accounts. The FTSE has been rubbish in that regard. The FTSE 250 has been okay, but the FTSE 100 has been rubbish. But the S&P has been like a savings account. And you know, I think maybe government bonds were a savings account before. They're not anymore. But, and you start thinking, well, maybe Bitcoin's the next savings
1: account. Yeah, we're seeing that. in the whole Bitcoin thing, I mean, I'm talking to a lot of people who now realize they don't even need to bring their savings back into the financial system because they just take it out of Bitcoin and then put it into like a stable coin, and they're earning 8% yields. They're like, oh, my god, why do I need to even go back to a bank? Like, unless I need to buy a house or a car or you know engage in the financial system, the, the taxation economy or whatever, the regular economy. So Where does this go? Because there's, there's two differences here. There's what everybody would like to happen, and we'll explore that. But what do you think happens over the next 10 years? My view, and I wrote this big article about it, is the rich will leave anywhere that they can to to go to lower tax jurisdictions because the taxes are only going to go up. It's front-running an obvious wave. So we're seeing it in the US, everybody moving to Miami and Texas. Um, I'm in the Cayman Islands. I mean, people are selling houses here to Brits, Canadians, Americans, and others. Site unseen, they sit on the internet. They buy a $5 million dollar apartments immediately um, because people are relocating here for jurisdiction. Because you can't just have this offshore shell company and all that shit; it doesn't work any longer. You need to relocate. So we're seeing. I'm seeing a huge amount of that. But what is going to happen?
2: Well, this is a trend that was already in place, and and it, it, we talk about it in in daylight robbery, but. Boy, has COVID accelerated it. Is, and, uh, you know, I know a couple of people, there's a big movement to Greece. Greece are giving you a, an, a European passport. You, all you have to do is buy a house for, I think it's 90,000 euros or something. You can go to Greece and you, you can pay, I can't remember the numbers. Portugal is doing similar as well, aren't they? Portugal's doing something similar. They're just trying to attract money. And there's a and and I know of other places, I'm actually not gonna mention the names on the podcast because I want to go. <laughs> I don't want there to be a rush of people buying the real estate before me. So that is definitely, and you know, for example, if you want to leave the UK and no longer be a tax resident of the UK, you have to, I think it's three quarters of the year at first, you have to be outside of the UK for. And after a while it goes back to about half. So You know, it's not enough, as you say, to relocate your business. You actually have to up sticks and go as well. But I think we're going to see a huge rise in this. And technology is making it possible. The digital nomad. And suddenly, thanks to COVID, remote working has been normalized. How many people do you know who haven't left their house for the last six months, certainly in the UK, and they've been able to just do their job from home and everyone accepts that now? You couldn't do that a year ago. Even if you're an accountant or something, you don't need to be in the office. You had to go in. Now you don't. You can just do it all from home. So remote working has been normalized. More Bigger taxes are coming. People are leaving the cities anyway because they're like, why do I need to pay the, the tax that is higher real estate prices when I don't even go there anymore? Now, the digital nomad, it's quite difficult at the moment because movement is so restricted because of COVID. But presumably, that's going to lighten up a little bit. And you will see people doing what Texas, Florida, Portugal, Greece, Cyprus, all these countries are doing, um, making themselves friendly to this new class of, of what Rees-Mogg um, used to call, Lord Rees-Mogg used to call the sovereign individual. but. You know, non-dom status was once the preserve of the super wealthy. Now, if you're a 21-year-old kid, you look at it and you go, I can go and live in Thailand, or I can go and live in Colombia, or I can go and live in Mexico, and I can do this, get paid the same as I get paid if I live in London. I don't have to, or maybe even paid a little bit less, but the cost of living is so much cheaper and the places are so much nicer. I'm going to go and do that. So you're going to see, and very quickly, you're going to see this digital. It's, it's people who work in the digital economy in some way can do this. But those that are stuck in the physical economy won't be able to do it quite as easily. And bizarrely, our tax systems are designed, they're not designed to cope with the digital economy. They're designed for the physical. They're designed from an industrial age. So not only the physical economy, people are going to find themselves trapped. They're, um, they're going to find themselves burdened with the extra taxes. It's almost going to be like two classes of individual. Uh the the free ones and the and the tax slaves. I think that's kind of the side society we're going into.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads dot com.
1: But that's not sustainable, right? Because basically, the most productive area where it generates the highest wealth is now mobile. Yep. Those that um, are least productive and generate the least wealth, retail workers, for example, right? They're totally screwed. If they ever get a job back, you, know, you and I lived through, I mean, I remember it well 1979, 1980, 1981, we lost shipbuilding, autos um, in the UK, shipbuilding, autos, steel, and iron, and coal. Five industries went. Never came back, and those people never got a job again. I know a lot
2: of them are still stuck in in uh, on in welfare in the welfare trap now.
1: Yeah, and you know retail workers are going to have the similar kind of problems. It's a structural issue. You can't tax them, so we get back into the end game zone. Here is okay. So the digital nomads League, We have a freedom of choice. We can move around. The governments are going to move towards global taxes. Um, yep. Uh, The UK has held off for years. All the Commonwealth countries held off. So a Canadian leaves Canada, comes to the Cayman Islands, doesn't pay tax at home. An American has a global tax. It probably goes that way. So everyone needs to get out the door fast.
2: Yellen Yellen was already making noises
1: about this. Then um, whatever's left, they start to try and raise taxes first on an unproductive population, and you're left with no economy. So who's going to pay the bills? Or is that still all part of the, the inevitable end game of this thing all has to stop? One of the ugly realities is
2: countries, and I think Western Europe has got a big problem here, a big, big problem, is those that can leave will. Those that can't will be burned with extra taxes and will be in this ridiculous cycle of protect the NHS at all costs. We must pay for this. And I just think governments will get more... The tax burden as a proportion of GDP will increase, and as a result, there will be more government, and there will be more controlling government. I'm reluctant to words that, use the word totalitarian. I use the word controlling, but you know what I'm saying. They're they're, they're connected, and those countries that adapt best to the new. Like, I'm coming back to this digital economy and physical economy. If you look at the incredible in, in Silicon Valley in 1990, the market cap of the four Largest companies in Silicon Valley was today compared to 1990. It's over a hundred times bigger. The digital economy has just grown at a rate that has eclipsed the physical. The physical economy has grown two, three, four, five percent a year, but the digital economy has grown at an exponential rate. But at the same time, those four largest companies in Silicon Valley today employ one quarter as many people as they did in 1990. So they they have way fewer employees. Now, income tax is the government's single largest source of revenue around the world. 50% of government revenue roughly comes from income taxes. Easy to collect. Deducted at source. A worker goes to a set place of work, you deduct it. There's been all sorts of studies that have shown that people who do the same job working in the gig economy pay much lower levels of tax. Sometimes because they just find things to write off. Sometimes it's just deliberate non-compliance. Sometimes it's just accidental. But one way or another, taxation after the event is much harder um, tax to collect. The But tax systems haven't adapted. And those countries that adapt to the realities of this new digital economy and hope will, you know, low tax regimes will be the places that attract digital workers. High tax regimes, they'll see an exodus.
1: What you're not saying is taxes are evil. I mean, there's a whole group of thought that says taxes are evil and that everything should be run by the private sector. I do not subscribe to that view. um. Well,
2: if I go to a Bitcoin conference for a weekend, I come away thinking that, you know, I get get very, uh, uh, you know, uh, anarchy, anarchy, anarchy. Um, Zero taxes, everything's evil, anarcho-capitalist. I'm I'm very persuaded by, by that narrative. But I think it's more theoretical than practical. And the reality of history, one of the first things we said in this interview, is there has never been a civilization without taxation. There has never been. Even in the hunter-gatherer societies that predated civilization, people would have done stuff not for themselves, but for everything else. It's part of human nature. But there have been societies where taxation was voluntary. Ancient Greece, for example, one of the most enlightened societies, taxation was voluntary there. And if, if you know, a society needed a public building or a bridge or a road or a warship or a games or whatever it is, something that the state typically pays for today, you know, a private guy would go and build it would would pay for it but not only did he pay for it he carried out the work himself so as a result his reputation was at stake and his wallet were at stake so you tended to see whatever the job was in question carried out to a much higher standard than if it was carried out by bureaucrats
1: yeah but also what he gets in return is power um, so, you know it's not a, oh it's not it's not altruistic no and this you know i also look at Scandinavia, which I know is a much—you know—everyone talks about it, but it's also about what you get in exchange for your tax, right? It's a—it's a trade-off. Do you get a value system that that is worthy of you? And if you get high-quality education and you get high-quality services, you don't mind. It's when the balance is, as you said, kind of robbing the future that everybody feels like I'm not getting what I deserve out of it. I've got some thoughts about that.
2: Firstly, one thing Scandinavia does that the rest of Europe doesn't do is a much higher percentage of taxes are levied at the local level. And so taxpayers can actually see the consequences of their taxes paid. So there's a a, a healthier relationship between taxpayer seeing rather than... than, And, you know, when you pay taxes in the UK, it's it's taken by a centralised body and you don't know where it goes and you don't see any... You don't really, you know, you don't have a relationship with the person that's the recipient of your charity, if you like. Whereas in Scandinavia, when it because much more is is done locally, you do see more of that, and as a result, there's more accountability from the person spending it, spending your taxes to the person paying for it. So that's one dynamic that Scandinavia has that we don't. Um, uh, you know, you look at a country like Hong Kong. Uh, at the end of the um, Second World War. It was, on a per capita GDP level, on a par with much of Africa. It was totally broken. Population, five, six, seven hundred thousand 700,000 people. Within a generation and a half, its per capita GDP has exceeded not only the United Kingdom, but it's exceeded the United States. It has... Much better education, longer life expectancy, healthier people, better public transport systems. It's the most incredible economic growth story of the second half of the 20th century. Now, it's not like there were no taxes in Hong Kong. There were taxes, but taxation, there were no income taxes except to higher earners. Taxation as a percentage of GDP never exceeded 14%. So it's much lower levels. Now, that figure is slightly illusory because a lot of companies base themselves in Hong Kong. So its GDP goes up and if you measure its GDP by its population, the figures get distorted. But in any case, it was a low tax jurisdiction. It was a simple tax jurisdiction. And 40 percent of Hong Kong's taxes came from land value taxes. Now, in the West, we barely taxed the value of land at all. In fact, we tax the property that's on the land more than we tax the land itself. And whereas what you should do is you tax the value of the land and ignore what's been built on it. Um, So it taxed, not only did it have much lower levels, it taxed in a different way. And that's, you know, if I was designing Utopia, that's, I would pretty much design it on the basis of Hong Kong.
1: Singapore and Dubai have done similar and they've both seen explosive growth.
2: Singapore saw how successful Hong Kong was being and copied it.
1: Yeah, and you know, I... I do think the answer is going to have to be in the end is probably some sort of low flat tax that's simplified. So if capital gains, if if capital gains, inheritance tax, income tax, everything was just let's say 12% or 15%. Right, nobody's going to leave. It's easy. You get rid of a massive school of part of the government which is all of the administration of taxes because everything's one number.
2: Yeah. And you, the other thing you need to take, like the UK tax code, the other thing you need to do is cut all the breaks and subsidies. Low, simple, flat rates. and Yeah. All, all, all of that has to go. All of
1: the shenanigans of yeah. you can offset this and this, it's like 15%, you can't get rid of it. That's it.
2: Yeah. And 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 the the bizarre experience with countries that have low levels of tax, low flat levels of taxation, is that often, even though the rates are lower, the, the um, return is higher because people are happy to pay. <laughs> you know, it, and, and this was something that the Islamic um, early caliphs used to say at great length. This was one of their things. And, and Arthur Laffer built his idea of the La- Laffer curve on this, on the philosophies of these uh, um, early caliphs. So they basically said the basic principle was lower taxes lead to greater revenue.
1: Yeah, and I think by incrementalism, we've gone the wrong way. And I just think because governments are so kind of bankrupt right now, is what we're getting is less and less services for our money. And that's what really pissed people off. I mean, you know, I lived in Spain for 10 years, and you know, when I was living in Spain for 10 years, I would pay taxes there, and I got really good quality infrastructure around me. Great quality medical care, you know, decent services, fantastic roads. Yeah, the EU sponsored a lot of it. But you know, I felt like I was getting value for money. But I think a lot of people these days just don't think that's possible because just wages aren't going up and everyone's being downtrodden. Listen, this has been a fantastic conversation. We could talk for hours on this. No, I think people should read the book because I you sent it to me. I haven't read it yet because I couldn't download it on Amazon because it's the UK version. I need to find it in the US version. Oh, no. But I can't wait because, look, it's really interesting. I think it's bang on point, and I think it's ahead of what people are yet understanding. But my guess is, in three years' time, everybody's going to be talking about not only mobility but this whole tax problem and how big this is and how it's going to have to be resolved. I think you're dead right. It's a you can't change the system of money itself without solving one of the big problems. And you know, it's not that necessarily taxation is evil; it's how it's done.
2: It's how it's done. And you talked about, We, I I meant to come to this, I've just suddenly listened to you now. We talked about international taxes. International taxes are very difficult when the majority of digital nomads are using crypto. It's much harder to tax and regulate a system of money over which you have no control. And so the whole that's a huge theme, and it's going to get much, much bigger in the years ahead. And and crypto is the best money for cross-border payments, and which is how people working in the it's the best money for the internet. And and that's how people working in the digital economy work. They work across the internet. Yeah, but
1: you know the issue is is governments need their share of the revenue, and if their share is too high, then money goes into Bitcoin as people move abroad. But they own the on-ramps and off-ramps. So even if you do move to Greece and you want to buy your ninety thousand euro house, you can't open a bank account with your crypto money. You're fucked. This is they. We have to play with them. We, there is no utopian society because the guy in Greece is not going to take Bitcoin because you have to register the house. People don't get this. So I could just buy a house with Bitcoin if the guy will take it. No, because he needs to register the house sale. So it becomes really I mean they do own all the tentacles. So but for saving yeah, their their grip
2: is getting is not as strong as it was, let's correct. put it that way.
1: Correct. And there are ways that you know people can get around stuff, but I think trying to avoid taxes altogether is only going to get land you into more trouble. No, you can't.
2: You I mean, you can you can skip income tax here and there and become non-dom, but you still can't avoid taxes, you have to pay sales taxes and you know, you can't avoid them altogether. They're, they are inevitable.
1: Yeah. Fascinating. Listen, really, really enjoyed it. Thanks
2: very much, Raoul. Real pleasure talking to you.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads.